Wonderful. I appreciate your enthusiasm and worship, and that's the way we should worship right there, with all of our hearts just pouring it out to God. Let me start. To, uh, I really want to teach through chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, but I'm going to do a, a, a comprehensive recap in just a second. Let me start right here with my own heart, because that's the easiest way for me to articulate what God's speaking to my own heart. So let me just start right here. At times, I feel like I'm a disappointment to God. Sometimes, I wonder if I'm an inferior Christian. Sometimes I wonder if I'm inferior to other Christians. Because when I'm around other Christians, and I'm always around other Christians, it seems like, my whole life, other Christians seem to have complete victory over sin. And I know the truth about me. I have lots of struggles with sin. Do you ever feel like other Christians have it all together, but you know some truth about yourself that you're really struggling? Do you feel like there's one class of Christians that, that have it together, they don't struggle with sin, they're beyond that, so therefore I must be in some second tier, some, some other group of people who call themselves Christians because I struggle with all kinds of sinful faults and, and sinful actions and sinful attitudes and sinful responses. Now if you can get where I'm at this morning and if you can be honest about those thoughts this morning one of the greatest Christians who ever lived some say the greatest Christian who ever lived a man who wrote half of the New Testament so I'd say he's up there is that fair Saul of Tarsus the Apostle Paul guy wrote half the New Testament is about to give us a tell-all. You know what a tell-all is, right? You're about to pull the curtain back and let just spill the beans and give you an unvarnished, honest, simple truth. The Apostle Paul's about to tell us in a few minutes the real truth about what it means to experience a genuine Christian life in Jesus Christ so every one of us know what to expect as we try to live a new life in Jesus Christ. And I appreciate that. Everything I do, I like to set the... Ex We're taking a group to Israel. We told them what to expect. It's going to be 120 in the shade. Okay? If you go to India with us, we try to say, let us get your head together on this. Here's what it's going to be like. No toilet paper for this trip. Okay? I mean, let's talk about what it's going to be like. Okay? Uh, you understand. You, you want somebody... To set the expectations in reality so when you experience whatever experience it is, you know what you're dealing with. Does that make sense? I appreciate that. I want to know what I'm going to face. So Paul is about to do a tell-all and tell us what the Christian life is really like so you'll know if you've got one or not in a few minutes, okay? Now, open your journals. Let me catch you up to where we are. Open the inside cover, just past the preface, 
Flip two pages, maybe one. There's a blank page. Go, 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 like the wind. Lick your fingers. Here we go. Find the blank page. On the blank page, I want you to write three words. You ready? Guilt. Grace. Gratitude. Now let me see if I can explain. From Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 1, to Romans 3.20, Romans is dealing with mankind's guilt because of sin. You might want to write this down. It's dealing with mankind's guilt because of sin. From chapter 3 to the end of 4, beginning of 5, Romans is dealing with the grace that God extends to us through the gospel. Romans 6 and 7 are a digression, parenthetical statement almost. You know what a digression is. It's when I'm explaining something or you're explaining something and we say, yeah, let me just digress for a minute and explain it in even more detail or say more reinforcing things about it. Okay, and then I want to come back to where I was and pick the story up and go again. It's a digression. Romans 6 and 7 are a digression. But just for outline purposes, Romans 6 through 16 are really about gratitude that gratitude section it's about living out our lives in obedience to God out of gratitude for all that Christ has done for us now in the guilt section which is the first few chapters of the book of Romans you'll find the thesis statement for the book of Romans now the thesis statement is always very important to a writing Romans chapter 1, to open your journal to Romans 1, and you'll find verse 16 and 17 there, Sarah, in their own section. You'll see how they've separated them out from the rest of the text. It's in its own little paragraph, 16 and 17. Right there, put a big star beside Romans 16 and 17, and write the word thesis or thesis statement. And what you've got in front of you right there is the thesis statement for the entire book of Romans. Let me read you the thesis statement. It says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why don't you just underline the word gospel there in your journal. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, then also to the Greek. Verse 17, For in it, if you want to in the margin, you can write gospel. For in the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I want you to underline the words righteousness of God. So what you've underlined is gospel, righteousness of God. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now with those words underlined, I can summarize the thesis statement for the book of Romans. Let me put it on the screen. The thesis statement is the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That's what those two verses teach. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now let me see if I can explain a little more. This, that's the, the guilt section that you're in where the thesis statement is. In the grace section from mid three onward, the grace section of Romans instructs us how God provided righteousness 
for unrighteous mankind like you and I. God has provided to sinners like you and I the imputed, credited, gifted, however you want to say it, the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ through justification by faith. That's what the gospel does. It provides you the righteousness of Christ by justification through faith. And that's why, Romans 1.16, it is the power of God to everyone that believes. That's Romans 1.16 and 17 expanded in the grace section now. Let's deal with the gratitude section. In the gratitude section... Paul deals with the implications of being justified by faith and now having the righteousness of God credited to our accounts, provided through faith in Jesus Christ or provided through the gospel. Here's, here's what it really means. What does it look like now to live out our lives in light of the fact that the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us? Now you're born again, right? Most of you? Okay, so the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account, imputed to you. So when God sees you, you stand in the righteousness of Christ. What are the implications of that? Let me say it another way to you who live in Texas. So what? What does it mean now? Having the righteousness of of Christ credited to me, what does that practically mean for me? How am I to live my life knowing the righteousness of Christ has credited to me, and that's really what we're going to talk about from chapter 6 onward. The first five, six chapters almost of the book of Romans have no commands in it. It's theology. It's teaching you about the thesis statement, how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, and how when you believe by faith, you're justified by faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ is credited to you, and you stand before God in Christ's righteousness. And it's not until chapter 6 onward that there are any commands about anything we should be doing. Does that make sense? So now we're getting to the practical part of the book of Romans, the gratitude section. As a matter of fact, all of you who are disciples... And all of you being discipled and making disciples or attend discipleship, my story workshops, you know that one of the things we do in discipleship is we teach you how to share the gospel, how to share your story and God's story. Every disciple, listen up for just a second, we've taught you to use the Romans Road, 323, 528, 623, 10, we've taught you the bridge illustration and how you can draw that. Did you know that you could actually use the outline of Romans... Guilt, grace, gratitude. You could actually use that to tell your own story. Here's who I was as a sinner living in guilt before God. And when I realized I was a guilty sinner, then I received the grace that God brought to me through Jesus Christ. And now that I'm saved, the implications, the so what is that because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to me, I live a different way, not because people make me, not because there's a bunch of rules. I live a certain way out of gratitude for all. I want to live a life pleasing to God, not because anybody's trying to make me. I want to live a life pleasing to God out of gratitude for all that Jesus Christ has done for me. So if you can remember that, the three G's becomes an easy way to tell your own story. Now let me give you some 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 teaching here open to chapter four in your journal 
And by the chapter 4 heading, I want you to write this sentence. How are we justified? How are we justified? The teaching of Romans 4 is a treatise on how we are justified, how we're made just before a holy God. And there's a lot about Abraham in there and about Abraham was, was justified by faith before God. And the answer is, how are we justified? Write these two words, by faith. By faith. Now that's the teaching of Romans chapter 4. Okay, you ready? Flip to Romans 5. By the heading of Romans 5, I want you to write this sentence. Who has made our justification possible? 4 is about how. 5 is about who. Who made our justification possible? Does anybody know the answer to this before I say it? Jesus Christ, exactly. Jesus Christ made our justification possible. Now, in our English Bibles, uh, uh, the English language is uh, great in this respect. There's a word that's used in English, the word therefore, which becomes a trigger word to, to perk your attention up. The word therefore is a summary word. And anytime you hit the word therefore in an English Bible... For example, someone will make an argument, make some teaching, say some things, and then you'll hit the word, therefore. Therefore puts its arms around everything that was previously said and explains it in a, in a very uh, concise summary. Is that fair? So Bible writers will talk, 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 and then they'll say, okay, therefore, they're about to draw a conclusion. Does that make sense? So every time you see the word, therefore, in English, in your Bible, you know that it's summarizing maybe whole chapters or some verses or some phrases that were just explained in the Scripture. So, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Romans 5 in your journal or your Bible. And in Romans 5, let me read verse number 1. You ready? Therefore, now pause. It means whatever he's about to say is going to summarize chapter number 4. Chapter number 4 was about how we are justified. Chapter 5, therefore, he's about to tell me, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's wonderful. It means now the summary is this. You have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You're justified by faith, and because of that, Jesus Christ has brought you into a relationship with your heavenly Father. That's cool. Now, let me give you two more, therefore, I want to draw your attention to. Romans 5, 12. So, in Romans 1, Sarah, why don't you do this? In Romans 1, circle, therefore, in your journal. Perfect. 5, 12. Circle, therefore, in your journal. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Somebody help me out. Who was the first man? Who was the first sinner? Adam, that's right. Therefore, as sin came into the world through Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Now he's going to talk for a little bit. And he's going to summarize again in verse number 18. 18 is going to summarize verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Circle therefore in verse 18 and let me read it. Therefore, let me summarize it up again. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's Adam. Adam sinned and therefore we're all sinners, right? So, one act of righteousness, does anybody know who that man was? Jesus Christ. 
So by one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ leads to the justification uh, and life for all men. Wonderful. There's two beautiful, three beautiful summaries using the word therefore. Now, here's what I want you to do. In your journal, I want you to put in chapter 6, verse number 1, I want you to open a parenthesis at the top of the page. Just start an open parenthesis up there. And I want you to go to the end of chapter 7 and I want you to close a parenthesis. That way I want you to know when you look back through your journal that chapter 6 and 7 are a digression. I'm explaining justification by faith. How? I'm explaining who. I want to digress for a minute and talk about something a little different. I'll come back to that justification through Jesus Christ in just a minute. But I want to digress for a minute, close the parenthesis, and then it'll hearken back to what I just said. So, uh... In a minute, I'll take chapter 5, verse 12, and I'll link it to chapter 8, verse number 1. It's like stepping across three or four mountain peaks like this and giving you a very high view of everything that's happening in these chapters. And when I step across those mountain peaks of truth in just a few minutes, and you see that all that Jesus Christ has done for you as a result of your new life in Christ, when you see it, you're going to walk out of these doors singing a song this morning. You're going to go out of here with joy in your heart, praising God all week long when you see what Christ has done for you. Now, go to chapter 6 in your journal. The big topic in chapter 6 Write this sentence, the believer's union with Christ. The believer's union with Christ. Now, if you can get that, you really know what chapter 6 is talking about. Because when you read chapter 6, you'll get lost with lots of arguments and lots of stuff happening. It's really about the believer's union with Christ. Let me explain to you what this means. David did a great job last week. Let me just summarize what, what Pastor David taught you last week. Our union with Christ is the basis of all the blessings that we have received and all the blessings we're going to receive from God. The basis for that blessing is we are in Jesus Christ. We have a relationship with Christ, and since we do, God wants to pour a lot of wonderful things into your life, but he only does it for people who are in Christ. It is the basis for all the blessings that you've received and will receive. Our union with Christ is the basis for the reinstatement of everything that we lost in Adam's fall. Now, God created us one way. He created marriage in a certain way. And we'll talk about this in the month of September. He created a husband-wife relationship to be a certain thing. It's not that thing anymore. I'll teach you this in September. He created a certain uh, 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 thing, and sin just derailed the whole mess. And so in Christ, when we're in a relationship with Christ, he restores all these things we lost in Adam's fall And he says, I want to bring it back to the way it was intended to be. It was intended to be a certain way. And I want to restore that in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Because we are now united with Christ in a relationship, we're no longer enemies. We are at peace with God. The Bible says we used to be enemies of God, but through Christ now, in Christ, we are brought into a peace treaty a peaceful relationship are you bored again you're not God's enemy and he's not yours and I want you to never view God as vindictive or hateful or in animosity towards you 
Do you ever get the feeling sometimes God wants to zap you? That's not the Holy Spirit putting that thought in your heart. That's Satan putting that thought in your heart. He wants to think, wants you to think your father is hateful and mean spirit and angry. And ju- he wants to think the wrong thoughts about God. Because of Jesus Christ, I'm at peace with God. You're at peace with God. You're not his enemy. You're his son. You're his daughter. You're his family. He loves you because of a relationship. And because of our relationship to Christ, we're no longer desperate to gain God's approval, uh, uh, struggling and, and trying so desperately to string together some good deeds so that we can win our Father's approval. Listen, this morning there's nothing more you can do to gain God's approval because you already have God's approval because you're in Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been credited to your account. So when Paul starts talking about a union with Christ, chapter 6, it blew people's minds. They had never heard this teaching before. It was, it was revolutionary. And because it was new teaching, they didn't know how to process a lot of things. So they began to ask a lot of questions, which Romans answers, the book of Galatians, and other books in the Bible answer the big questions, philosophical, spiritual, theological questions that kept coming out of this teaching that we are in union with Christ. Let me see if I can help you. Here's one of the questions that began to be asked. Does this mean we can live however we want? I mean, I'm in union with Christ. I stand guiltless. I stand righteous. I'm at peace with God. I'm God's child. I'm family. Does that mean I can live however I want? It's a, it's a sincere question. Questions like this. Does this mean we ought to sin even more? So that God's grace will appear even more gracious. In other words, if, I'm, if, I, if, I, if I go completely breaking bad, does that mean that God looks really even better, gracious, and good, and holy? Does that make sense? If I'm worse than I am now in my behavior, doesn't it make God look better for forgiving such a monster like me? It was one of the questions they were struggling with, trying to figure out what the implications were about being in Christ. There was a third question that really maybe we should consider. Does this mean we just keep living unchanged lives since we're not under the law? So since I stand guiltless before God, does that mean I can just go on living the way I used to live before I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Can I go on living that way uh, as as I used to live? Can I live the old sinful lifestyle since I'm not under the law and I stand forgiven before God? Now, all of those questions are answered really by Romans chapter 6. Let me summarize. We've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and His purchasing our lives out of bondage to sin means that our loyalties must be different now than they were in the past. We are free this morning, but not free to do whatever we choose to do, but we are free from the bondage of sin to obey God. We're free to live for Christ. We're not slaves to sin. We can live for God. And so in Romans chapter number 6, Paul illustrates our union with Christ in three different ways. So what you're about to see unfolded in front of you is Paul saying, I know that's hard to comprehend, union with Christ, so let me illustrate it for you. His first illustration is this. Our baptism illustrates our union with Christ. Now, I just want you to think back to your baptism for a minute. If you were baptized already, then you're thinking back of what that was like. And the pastor said, have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you put your faith, have you been justified by faith through the gospel? 
Are you in union with Christ? Yes, I am. Upon your profession of faith, I bury you in the likeness of his. As Christ died, you died with Christ. To your old sinful lifestyle, you died to sin in Christ. When he was nailed to the cross and died, was buried, you died and were buried with him. Raised to walk in newness. Is that not indicative, those words, that we are to be living a different life? We don't say buried in the likeness of his death, raised to live a hellion as before. God bless you. Go in peace, my child. No, we say raised to walk in a new life, a different life, a life in Christ. There are implications to being born again. There are implications to being justified by faith. And he said your baptism is one of the biggest experiences of your life that was a picture of your, you you were united with him in death. You were united with him in resurrection to live a new life united in Jesus Christ. Now we had a great opportunity a few weeks ago. Obviously we were in Israel and we had with us one of our wonderful uh, people here from Cornerstone who was ready to be baptized. And so we got an opportunity to baptize her standing where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. Your baptism is a living illustration that you're united with Christ. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk. You're united with Christ. Do you think her baptism means something to her? Let me ask you a question. Did your baptism mean something to you? Have you been walking in newness of life? Now that you've experienced the living illustration of baptism? If not, we're going to have an opportunity this morning to make a few adjustments, okay? Now, that's just the first illustration Paul used. He says, being in union is like your baptism. The second illustration he uses is like belonging to a cruel slave master, but somebody else comes along and buys you away from the cruel slave master, and the guy who buys you is a wonderful, gentle, gracious, loving, kind owner. Does that sound better? The cruel slave master is sin, and it says that you've been bought from that cruel slave master of sin, that you should serve another. Now, there's no such a thing as a life not serving someone, so you can just dismiss that right now. If you say, I just want to run wild and free, you're already under the slave master of sin. So you understand what I'm saying. Wouldn't you rather be under the, the rulership of a gracious and loving king? As a matter of fact, Christ is so gracious and so kind and so loving that you can't imagine serving anyone else now that you've been justified by faith. And he's so wonderful to serve that you don't ever want to go free out from under his kingship. As a matter of fact, we'll follow the Old Testament uh, example that's given and we go to the door post of the house where we have our ear pierced as a symbol to the world that we no longer want to serve any other master. We just spend our whole lives serving this wonderful Jesus Christ. Now that's all in the Bible. You can write next to Romans chapter 6, Exodus 21, 6. Just right there in the margin, Exodus 21, 6. Deuteronomy 15, 17. And what those two passages will tell you when you read them is they'll tell you the story, how they pierced the ear. I know, some of you already got the pierced ear, don't you? I don't know what yours meant when you got it, but when they got it, what it meant 
it was an illustration that I want to serve forever this wonderful, wonderful man who's protecting and providing and caring and loving for me and my family. Now, the, the third illustration of our union with Christ happens all in chapter 7. And when chapter 7 opens, it's the third illustration. It's the illustration of the freedom a widow receives to remarry and reproduce. Now, let me start reading here because this is new territory for you. Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. I mean, the law that says stop at the stop sign doesn't apply to a person we bury. Is that fair? The law that says, you know, 55 or 75 miles an hour, that law doesn't apply to someone who's dead. they're, They're free from the law. What he's saying is the law doesn't apply to someone who's dead. Verse 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Is that fair? Perfect. We all understand that. At death, the union is broken and the woman is free to remarry again and to bear children, bear offspring, to bear fruit with the new husband and go on and live a productive life in that new relationship. Let me read Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ that now you belong to another, to him that has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, he says, this is what being united to Christ is. I just imagine you're married to someone, and then they die. You're released. Okay, now you can marry another and raise up children and bear fruit. We died with Christ and was buried, and we rose again with Christ, the resurrected Christ. We are now married to the resurrected Christ, if you would. And it's not just enough to be married to the resurrected Christ. You're supposed to, help me with these two words right here. You're supposed to bear fruit for God. Now, for those of you who thought coming to church on Sunday was the fulfillment of your obligation, you're having an epiphany right now. I'm glad you come to church. Romans 10 says uh, you're commanded to come to church. But coming to church isn't the ticking of the boxes or the punching of the time clock that says, okay, God and I are good now. I showed up for an hour and a half. That's great. We worship for a whole other reason. The real fulfillment, the real end result of our relationship in union with Christ is that we might reproduce. What do you think we're reproducing? Disciples for the kingdom of God. We're reproducing other believers. We're reproducing other Christians. Reproducing disciples. We're reproducing followers of Christ. Whatever word you want to use, we're reproducing fruit that remains and continues to multiply and multiply and multiply until the kingdom of God comes in its full force. So, when the husband dies, we're free. We can remarry and bear fruit. Third illustration of your union with Christ. So now. For, for the believers who are living in union with Christ, we're going to ask ourselves a question. And what's our relationship to the law? So those first chapters, the law was talked about a gajillion times. So now that we understand we're living in union with Christ, what is our present relationship or ongoing relationship with the law? To answer this question, Paul is going to write the rest of chapter 7 and the first of chapter number 8. To answer this question, what is my ongoing relationship with the rules? To answer this question, Paul's going to get very personal now. 
Now brace yourself, okay? Because what I'm about to read for you is like sitting down at my kitchen table in a discipleship group where all of us pull off our mask and we can be honest about what our lives look like and we can be real with each other and we can cry and we can clap and rejoice. And You understand what I'm saying? We're about to go into a very intimate moment with the Apostle Paul where he's going to, not the Sunday mask we wear, but the real what it looks like being a follower of Christ. Paul's about to turn the conversation very personal. And he begins the conversation by saying this, what the law does, it does very well. What the law does, it does very well. Do you know what the law does? It points out our sin. And what the law does, it does really well. It points out our sin. Let me read. Here we go. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Oh, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it was, what it was to covet if the law had not said you should not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So what the law does, it does well. What does the law do? The law exposes our sin But the law cannot save us from our sin. Does that make sense? All the law can do for you this morning is point the finger and say, you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. This is Romans 3, all of sin. There's none righteous. That's what the law does. It points its finger and says, here's the law. You don't live it. You're guilty. See the rules. You don't live up. You're guilty. Here the rules. You don't live up. You're guilty. And all the law can do is point out our guilt. So let me ask you a question. Is the law evil because it tells us the truth? Let me ask you a different question. Is your mirror an evil thing because it tells you the truth? You stumble into the bathroom on a Monday morning. You know what I'm saying? And you look in the mirror and you say, I hate you, mirror, because those bags aren't really there under my eyes. And how dare you project them on the mirror? Those wrinkles aren't in the corner of my eyes. What's your problem? You're terrible. I mean, you don't walk in and look at the mirror in the morning and punch it and say, you're an evil mirror. The mirror only tells you the reality of the truth, doesn't it? Is the law evil because it told you the truth about your sin? Somebody say no. And I'll prove it to you, verse 12. So the law is, what's the word? Holy. And the commandment is? Holy and righteous and good. Okay. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. Paul saying the law didn't cause death. Sin caused death. The law just pointed out the reality of my deadness in sin before God. What Paul's really saying, simple English, is what the law doesn't do well, it doesn't do at all. (laughs) What the law 
it doesn't save you. It doesn't produce righteousness in you. What the law doesn't do, it doesn't do at all. It's not intended to do. The law points out our sin, but the law cannot sanctify us, which is a word that means it cannot help us live holy lives. The law doesn't have the power to sanctify the believer. The law doesn't assist uh, and empower the believer to live a life pleasing to God, a life overcoming our sins. All the law can do is point its finger at us and say, you're guilty. It cannot help us live Christ-like lives. So what's our ongoing relationship to the law? It can't help us moving forward. Are you all with me? It can't help you going forward. Do you already know you're guilty and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you stand before him justified? Then the law can't help you moving forward. Is the law bad? Just can't help you. Do you understand the dilemma now? So what's our ongoing relationship to the law? Will we still live in the spirit of thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, you know you shall not. Those are still good things, but... You got it. My next thought is simply this. The struggle is real. Now Paul's about to get very personal. And I want you to be very transparent right here in your heart as you receive this. When I say to you the struggle is real. Do you remember how I started this sermon? How I feel about my own Christianity at times? The struggle is real. This section, Romans 7, 14 to 25, is going to help you understand the lives we live in Christ and what your expectations should be. Listen very carefully. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can I get a witness anywhere in the room right now? For if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right. Amen? I have a desire to do the right thing, but not the ability to carry it out. For I did not do the good I want. But the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Can I get a witness? We're at the kitchen table with Paul right now. So if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, verse 20, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do the right thing, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love God. I love the word of God. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member. Oh, wretched man that I am. Amen and amen. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? Here's your answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, let me wrap it. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That's what the Christian life looks like. Now, 
Paul is describing himself. This is a guy who wrote half the New Testament under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There's not a greater Christian who's ever lived on planet Earth than perhaps this man himself. He is a mature, born-again, disciple-making, Christian apostle. Would you say that's a mature Christian? Here is a mature Christian describing in a tell-all his own personal Christian life. And he's saying the law couldn't justify me before I was a believer. And now that I am a believer, the law doesn't have the power to sanctify me or to grow me up and help me live the life of righteousness that I want to live. The conflict that Paul is describing, listen carefully, is reflective of a normal, healthy Christian life. Do you feel better right now? The struggle he's describing is in the Bible so that people like you and I who think everybody else has it together, but I'm struggling with sin. I must be a third-rate Christian. Paul's saying, no, not at all. This is the Christian life. This is what it looks like. It's a constant battle. And because of this, since Paul is describing his life, and his struggle as a mature Christian, then perhaps we ought to expect a much bigger and longer battle than maybe we've been led to believe. In other words, you watch some, some Christians or some TV Christians, and they're like, it's all going to be you know, just roses and, and Cadillacs. Listen, it's not true. This is the real Christian life. Struggling against sin. And the conflict is, is normal. It, it is what it is. Perhaps in light of what we're reading, perhaps in light of this, we ought to view the Christian life as an endless, ongoing conflict, which is exactly the way the New Testament describes it. It's not a playground, it's a battlefield, Christianity. Now, you've been born again, and you're redeemed. That's not the issue. The issue is now what? You're united with Christ. That's not the issue. The gospel has the power to unite you and justify you before God. That's done. The question is now what? Now, what are the implications of having the righteousness of Christ? What what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live my life? What does living for Jesus look like? Now that I've been born again, this is what it looks like. So I'm instructing our gentlest women, our kindest grandmothers, our naive young adults, and everybody in between, that you are to take up arms against the sin that indwells you, and you're to bite and to scratch and to fight with every street tactic you can, you can invent and muster so that you can fight against sin all the days of your life. That's what it looks like. That's what Christianity, you say, well, I must be very broken. No, this is what the best Christians describe it like. This is mature Christianity. Holy living is hard. It's never been easy. And that means we have to apply ourselves to a battle knowing that we're going to have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8, I'll get to it next week. Having to rely upon the Holy Spirit to empower us and give us strength and do what we cannot do in our own flesh. Let me give you the quote from a famous theologian on this text. I'll put it up on the screen. Let us not expect too much from our own hearts here below. At best, we shall find in ourselves daily calls for humiliation and discover that we are needy debtors to mercy and grace every hour. The more light we have, the more we shall see our own imperfections. Sinners we were when we began. Sinners we shall find ourselves as we go. 
renewed, pardoned, justified, yet sinners to the very last. Our absolute perfection is yet to come, and the expectation of that is one of the reasons we should long for heaven. Yeah, one day you'll win this battle at the resurrection, and there'll be no more struggle with sin, and that's the reason we long for Christ to come. Let me see if I can restate it several times so you can get it. The law is good. Indwelling sin is bad. And wherever we have a desire to do good, that desire is unable to overcome the strength of our indwelling sin that wants to do bad. Is that fair? If Paul struggled, we probably should accept this morning that we're in a struggle against sin for the rest of our lives. Paul takes up the argument. He started way back in chapter 5. Now watch this. I'm going back to 5 where we started circling therefores. So when you circled therefore, Sarah, it read like this. Therefore, let me sum up chapter 4. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He digressed for a while, chapter 6, chapter 7, union with Christ. How should we live? What are the implications of being in? What's our relationship to the law? Now he's about to open chapter 8 with a therefore. You'll want to circle. No condemnation. I'm closing now, so everybody just focus right here. No condemnation. Let me read Romans 8, 1. There is therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The conversation was you're united with Christ, right? Therefore, there is no condemnation to them who struggle against sin, yes or no. But even though you do, there is therefore no condemnation for those who who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me explain, because this is so important. It'll change your life. Christians, having been justified by faith, have had all the fear of God's judicial wrath removed, and we are no longer living in fear of the consequences of God judging either our sin or our sinful actions, not now and not ever. Try to absorb this. No condemnation. Have you received Christ by faith? Have you been justified by faith? You're in union with Christ. Amen? Therefore, no condemnation to you. None. Not any. Never. At any point. No condemnation. The word condemnation in the English is not the same as in the Greek where this is written. The Greek word is katakrima. It's used only three times in the New Testament. And the English doesn't really have this word. Condemnation is as close as we can come, but it's not really the same explanation. Katakrima is a forensic word that includes both the accusation... The sentence and the execution of the sentence. Alan, you were in law enforcement. You know there's a trial phase, an accusation phase, 
and you go through the trial and you're found guilty because of sin. Easy enough. And then the judge says, okay, now next we'll have the sentencing phase. Does that make sense? And then they have the sentencing phase where you get your sentence. And then, really there's a third thing, if you would, or the end of the sentencing phase is they carry out the punishment. Does that make sense? When the Bible uses the word condemnation, it includes all of that. Not just the accusation, but the execution of the punishment as well. We don't have that word in English. It's all comprehensive. I think that makes sense to you. You see, by using this particular word, it's used very strategically in the New Testament. By using this word, God is saying to us, not only is there no more accusation to be leveled against you, there is no more punishment phase left regarding your sin. Do you understand the implications of that? No one can accuse you. It gets even better. There is no more punishment phase left to execute for your sin. No condemnation. Not only are we out from under the sentence, we're out from under the judicial wrath of a holy God. And if God has already gotten rid of the punishment phase of our sin, now you're going to understand Romans 8 next week when the Bible says, <laughs> who can be against us? If God's said no more, who can be against us? You're going to understand then when you read in your Bible, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? No one. You're going to understand now when you read. And what shall separate us from the love of God? Height, depth, breadth, any creature? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now let me show you where this word is used again in the New Testament. It's used in one of your favorite Bible stories. And I'll close with this. In John chapter number 8, they grab a woman taken in adultery. They throw her down in the street in the dirt in front of Jesus. And they say, we're going to execute the sentence upon this woman. We accuse her of adultery, phase one. And now we're going to carry out the punishment phase. She was called in a sexual crime. And we're going to execute her publicly according to what the law says. Jesus, we want you to weigh in on this and participate with us. Jesus writes in the dirt, essentially telling those accusers that they are also sinners. And what she's done is no more different than what they have done. And he levels the playing field. They taste guilt. They don't stay around for grace and gratitude. They taste guilt. They drop the weapons. And they begin to walk away. You know the story? You're going to see it differently now. Let me read John 8 verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to the woman, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? There's the word. Has no one condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now listen to what I'm saying. His point was not whether anyone had accused her. A gajillion people were accusing her. There was a whole mob of people pointing a finger and accusing her of adultery. His question was not in the English thinking, did someone make an accusation 
A whole bunch of people made accusations against her. There's no debate. His point was this. Has anyone carried out the sentence phase attached to the accusation? Has anyone, is anybody throwing stones? Woman, is anyone throwing? Where are your accusers? Is anybody throwing stones at you? Then the Lord says... She says, no, Lord, no one's thrown a single stone at me. Then Jesus says, neither do I. Neither do I. You know what he's telling her? I'm going to bear your sins in my own body so that you can go free. We look back at this story and saying he bore our sins in his own body so that we could be justified by faith. Has anybody thrown a stone at you? No. Then neither do I throw a stone at you. Neither do I execute the punishment on you. But what are the implications of that, ma'am? I want to ask you people sitting here this morning, does Jesus throw stones at you? Has he demanded that you pay for your own sins or has he paid for them? He paid for them. So he doesn't throw stones at you to execute you for your sins. But what are the implications of that? Because I don't throw stones at you, I'm asking you out of gratitude, go and live differently. Go and sin. No, go and live a different type of life living in the knowledge that I don't punish you for your sins either because I punished myself for your sins do you understand why I use the word gratitude now in the outline God's not making you live a certain way if you're in union with Christ you want to live a certain way out of gratitude for all that's been done for you. Now, let me ask you a last question. For what group of people is this true? Let me look at the verse again. 8-1. For what group of people is this true? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that statement is what ties us back to Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. There is no condemnation to those who are in union with Christ. Listen to what I'm saying. None. Yeah, but what about none? But I did something hard. None. Never. Ever. There is no place in the future where anyone's going to point a finger at you because of your sin. There is no place in the future... When you go out to eternity, there is never a time in eternity when you're going to have to be punished for your sin. The punishment phase is complete. It's done. Never. No condemnation. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Now, in light of that, ladies and gentlemen, in light of that, what should our response to God be this morning? I'm talking to believers now all over the room who have by faith been justified and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to your life. Let me ask you, first of all, are you bearing fruit? And if you're not, then use this moment right now as a pivot point in your life where you say to God this morning, God, I understand now what it's all about. 
you saved me not just to save me, but you saved me to reproduce fruit in a new righteous relationship with the Son of God. I got it now. And from this day forward, I'm going to start bearing fruit. I'm going to be discipled. I'm going to make disciples. I'm going to get in the mission now. Christian, maybe you've just been living your life however you want to live it. Just doing your own thing. I'm saved. Okay, now just do my own thing. And now after hearing an explanation from the book of Romans, you understand that that is not a proper response to the grace of God. You're not free to go live however you want. You're free to serve God and obey Him out of righteousness. Maybe you need to make a pivot as well, Christian, this morning. You get on your knees here in this service. And this is really what I'm asking every believer to do this morning. Just slip out of your seat and get on your knees for a moment and say to God, God, I just need to use this moment of my understanding. I need to use this moment as a moment of rededication in my life, God, where I'm going to not live another day following my own desires, but God, I'm going to live out of gratitude for all that you've done for me, and my life is yours. I don't want to serve anyone else. I want to lay my head against the doorpost and have my ears pierced to your servitude. I don't want to serve anyone else the rest of my life but you. Is that something you can get on board with this morning, child of God? You're not free to do anything. You're free to serve God. And it's going to be a struggle. Maybe you're struggling. And maybe this morning for the first time in your life, you've heard a very mature Christian give his own testimony from Romans 7 and tell you what his struggle was like. That's what our struggle is going to be like. Maybe you could just bow before a holy God this morning and say, God, I get it now. I get it now. My body wants to do one thing. My mind, my spirit, well, they want to do another thing. And I'm, I'm in an internal conflict. Yeah, you are for the rest of your life. But God's not left you alone. He's given you the Holy Spirit to live in your heart, to help you and empower you. But you've got to call on Him. You've got to rest in Him. You've got to ask Him to speak to you. You've got to listen to His voice. You've got to let Him have control of you. Because if you don't, that flesh will get control of you. That's why you've got to yield to the Holy Spirit this morning. Maybe you, this morning, have been convicted by the guilt of your sin. And you're ready to receive Christ as your Savior. You've never done that before. You want to be in union with Christ. Now the gospel is what you've heard. And now your response is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And he'll do the rest. If you're ready to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to pray in faith to him right now. I'll lead you. You can follow. Pray like this. Dear God. I confess to you this morning that I am a sinner. The law has condemned me and pointed out that I'm guilty, and I am. That's my confession. I am. And so, God, I need a Savior this morning who can help me. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God that came to this earth as a man, lived a perfect life. And I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross, taking my sin and my shame and my punishment upon yourself. And I understand now that I died with you. 
and you went into the grave and you came back out to be my Savior and I understand by faith this morning that I can live in the resurrected life of Christ. So Jesus, this is my cry to you this morning. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior from sin. My faith is all in you and not in myself and not in anything else. You alone. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me. And Lord, I want to claim that verse that you said by faith. If I was in Christ, there is no condemnation. Lord, I claim that this morning as I put myself in union with you. Come into my heart and take control of my life. Be my Lord and my Savior from now and all of eternity. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Because of the lateness of the hour, I'm not going to ask a prolonged invitation. I'm not going to ask you to come and join or schedule your baptism or anything else. We're going to go home with joy in our hearts. Listen, no condemnation ever. I don't know if you're waiting for, you know, judgment to fall. Forget it. It's not going to happen. If you're in Christ, it's done. None ever. That's what living in union with Christ. What a joy. What a joy. Let's go home with the song in our hearts.